0: All right, once again, if you've got your Bibles with you, let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 11, page 897 of those blue Bibles that you have in front of you this morning. This is uh, today the third of four sermons in this series. Am I mic'd? Yeah? All right, good. Uh, Third of four sermons in this series, and if you haven't been with us, here's the quick summary of where we are to this point. Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, has died, and Jesus, having delayed, and then knowing of the death of his friend, is heading towards this house of mourning with the purpose of life. And as he goes towards this place just outside of the village, Martha, the sister of Lazarus, comes out to meet Jesus, and Jesus, in his conversation with her, makes the statement, A, your brother will rise again, but B, perhaps even, no, certainly even more significantly, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not that I create resurrection in life, or I do them, or I give them. It's not only those things, but I am them. That is who I am. And in our passage today, Mary now comes to Jesus as well. Uh, and, and by the way, it's, it's probably the case here that Jesus hasn't actually gone into the village, into the house, because where Jesus went, that tended to create a hubbub, that tended to create commotion there. Uh, And it seems rather that his desire was to have a more private conversation with Martha, and that seemed to work uh, with Mary, as we'll see here. It doesn't work out in the same way because the crowds come out with Mary as well as she goes to see Jesus. So hear this portion of the word of God. I'm going to begin at verse 28 and read through verse 38 today. This is the life-giving word of God. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Lord, We believe, help us in our unbelief. Together with Martha, help us to hold the good confession, to understand that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who has and is come into the world, living one, eternally living one, life-giving son, resurrection-possessing son, be with us today as you were there outside of Bethany. Comfort our hearts, minister to us, we ask in your name. Amen. When was the last time you had a good cry? Was it this week? Was it a couple of weeks ago? Within the last six months, within the last year, when was the last time you had a good cry? What what did you cry over? What was the substance of it? What was the thing that got to you? And maybe I should ask this as well. If you haven't had a good cry in a while why not? Why not? Where's it been? It is a sad world, or at least we can certainly say it is a world full of sadness and sadnesses, or if we want to use the words from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that we used a little bit earlier in the service today— It's a world full of misery and miseries, and there's a time to weep. Bet you've heard that passage before. There's a time to weep. There's a book in your Bible, by the way, called Lamentations. Jesus said, blessed are you who weep now. For you shall laugh. Blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. And of course, Jesus himself in Isaiah is described there as the man of sorrows, the one who is acquainted with grief and in our passage this morning we have perhaps the clearest the simplest expression of exactly that jesus the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief the holy spirit through john the gospel writer wanting to clear everything else out of the way and say the original readers say to us, observe Jesus crying. Jesus wept. Look at that, hear that, consider that your Savior wept. Mary wept. Certainly Martha would have been weeping as well. The mourners who came out with Mary wept, and Jesus wept. Jesus wept even though he knew what he was about to do. That wasn't unclear to him. We've seen the clear, considered purpose of Jesus from the moment we started looking at this chapter. He knew what he was going to do. He knew, if you will, how it was going to end. And still, he wept. He was deeply affected by all that was around him. Verse 33 and verse 38 use the same descriptor to say that Jesus was deeply moved. We'll look at that more closely in just a few minutes, but he was moments, but he was deeply moved. And of course, verse 33 adds as well that he was greatly troubled. Crying, when we cry, it doesn't just happen with our eyes. Uh, As we know, when you're having a good cry, all of your being and all of your body are involved in a good cry. It's true for us, and it's true for our Savior as well. And today what we want to ask as we look at this passage is, why did Jesus cry? What made him cry? That he cried, maybe that's even more significant than understanding why, but that he cried, that he was full of turmoil inside of him, that he was churning inside of him is clear to us. That's exactly what the scriptures tell us here, but why What does it mean when you see the resurrection and the life crying? I'm going to offer to us today six reasons why Jesus cried. Uh, They are not in a sanctified order. Uh, However, they do progress. They do progress to things that are weightier, and more significant as we work our way through them. Why did Jesus cry? First, Jesus is moved by the death, the sickness, the consequence of sin that is so starkly on display before him, the one who created a world teeming with life. The resurrection and the life is confronted by death. And here we have to look at what I said we would look at more closely before, and that is the term that we have translated deeply moved. At least we have it translated deeply moved in our ESV versions in both verse 33 and 38. In the first instance, when Mary and the mourners come forward, Jesus is deeply moved. Then when he comes to the actual tomb in verse 38, Jesus is deeply moved your Bible, uh, if, if it's an ESV, um, probably has a footnote, and you can kind of go down to the bottom of the page in your Bible. A footnote generally means that there are different ways to translate that particular word, and if you look down there, your Bible probably has, in quotation marks or in italics, indignant. Jesus is indignant. Indignant when he sees these things. Indeed, the word uh, as understood and was confirmed by a variety of sources can denote the idea, the sound of the snorting of horses. And as D.A. Carson notes, when it's applied to humans, uh, it, it, it can mean that you are angry, that you are enraged, when you are deeply moved in this way. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. Sin and sickness and death, they were not, for Jesus, matters of indifference. God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over all. And we looked at this when we did the first sermon in this passage that these things, all of these events are according to the perfect purposes of God. But the Bible also says in Ezekiel that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked let alone in the death of a friend pleasure. He's in control. He's sovereign over it. But no pleasure. Jesus is not stoic before suffering. He doesn't just chalk it up to providence. He doesn't just say, well, this is the will of God. What are you going to do? There's a time to die for everybody. What are you going to do? It happens to everyone. He doesn't chalk it up He doesn't just look at it as, well, those are consequences. He doesn't even simply look at it as an opportunity. He is going to use this, as we know, as one of the greatest signs in history of being the life-giving word of God, the resurrection and the life. And he doesn't even take this one and say, well, I don't have to cry. I know why this is taking place. I know what I'm going to do with it. And I know that in thousands of years from now, people are going to be encouraged by this passage, by the fact that I'm the resurrection of the life. Death is an awful reality. It is the judgment of God against the sin of the world and the one who is the resurrection and the life. Please forgive me, but I I can't think of a better snorts before it. Growls before it. And he's troubled before it. And he weeps before it. Second, why does he cry? We see, in particular, in what I just read for us, that this initial response, this initial described reaction of Jesus, was triggered when he saw, in particular, the weeping of Mary and the mourners as they approached. A Jewish custom dictated that even a poor family, and this was not a poor family, but even a poor family would be required at a funeral to have two flute players there and one hired mourning woman to be part of the way you mourn as a culture, the way you express sadness. It was, it was thus demonstrative. It wasn't just quiet. It wasn't just inward. It was demonstrative. People came, as is obvious. People sat. People visited. People played. People cried. So no doubt there's more than one hired mourner. At this particular funeral of a fairly wealthy family. No doubt that sometimes, and I'm not here to judge that practice as a whole, um, and Jesus doesn't make any specific comment on that practice, but no doubt sometimes it went beyond the pale. It overflowed in a way that became inappropriate. And it's very hard to say when we're looking at this text, but it certainly could be that Jesus, in seeing this scene unfold before him, is looking at and angry at a mourning that has decayed into a hopeless despair. Many of you are familiar, of course, with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is trying to comfort the church, comfort them in particular in light of the fact that many of their friends, family members who had been in the Lord have now fallen asleep, that is to say they have died. And in giving them comfort, he says to them and instructs them, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. There is a grieving that is done with hope and there is a grieving that is done without hope and it is possible that Jesus is here moved and angry because of what he perceives to be an absence of resurrection hope though they believed in the resurrection. Remember that when he had told Martha couple of verses up, when he had told Martha, your brother will rise again, she quickly said, I know that he will rise again at the end time, at the resurrection on the last day. But perhaps that wasn't as comforting as Jesus thinks it should have been, and there's a growl that comes from him as he watches this and says, are you sure you believe it I'm reading into it right now. Are you sure you believe what you profess to believe? Third, Jesus weeps out of love for a friend. This is the reason given for the weeping by those who observed it, right? Verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now, to be sure that was not the full reason. That's why there are six and not one of the reasons why Jesus wept. But the fact that it's not perhaps the full reason is, does not mean that it should be ignored in what we're considering with those tears today. Love and tears go together. If you will, it's why you have tears because you lost someone that you love. Just for the sake of getting into it, just imagine for a moment that your best friend has died. Just imagine right now, just to warn you, it'll probably happen. Just imagine that your best friend has died and you're at that funeral, you're at that place, You're in that house. You're with those people. And we saw so deliberately and so clearly communicated by John in the run up to this particular portion the love that Jesus had for Lazarus. Remember when Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, the word that comes is the one whom you love. He's sick. Verse 5, John says to us, don't miss it, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he finally by divine providence knows, divine insight, omniscience, knows that Lazarus has died, he says to the disciples, our friend Lazarus has died, now let us go there. Jesus loved Lazarus on this earth. But my friends, Jesus is not bound in love by the 33 years that he had physically present on this earth. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Jesus loved me, this I know. Jesus, who loved us first. Jesus, whose love is perfect and is pure. Having loved his own, John 13. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Jesus cried because Jesus loved Lazarus. And when your friend has endured the pains of death, you cry in love and in hurt, even when you know what's about to happen. Even when you know, you cry at your friend and his family. Have endured this. Fourth, Jesus weeps in preparation for his own experience of and battle with death, which is foreshadowed in this event. The time has just about come for Jesus. Several times to this point in the Gospel of John we have read it either said as commentary or on the lips of Jesus, my time has not yet come. His hour had not yet come. The time for him to die had not yet arrived, but, and this is what we saw earlier as well, with this turning towards Jerusalem with the disciples and heading towards Bethany, and towards the death of his friend, the time has arrived. The time has arrived not only for Lazarus, the time has arrived for Jesus as well. In the next chapter, verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose. I have come to this hour. There's a time to die. And this was the time. And Jesus is confronting that reality right here. He's turned not only towards the death of a friend, he has turned towards his own as well. In the previous section... And throughout the sermon, I've noted that Jesus is weeping even though he knows what is going to take place with Lazarus. He knows what he is going to do. But remember this as well. Jesus doesn't have any doubts about his own resurrection either. Chapter 10, just to take the closest example that we have. Chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. There's no doubt there. There's no room for wondering there. I wonder if I'll be raised from the dead. I wonder when the resurrection will happen. I wonder if things will be great again. There's no doubt that exists for the Son of God when he contemplates those things. But that in no way makes him dismissive of the agony of death. The cost of redemption The cost of the resurrection of Lazarus, the cost of our redemption and our resurrection is His death, His suffering, His shame, His sorrow, His blood. The cost of our redemption, of our resurrection, of the resurrection of Lazarus is His agony and His tears. That's what it costs. And in his case, he holds two things at the same time, which serves as a model for us on the one hand. He has absolute faith in his Father with complete confidence in the resurrection. And on the other hand, he has sorrow and sadness, and he is deeply moved in the face of the trauma of death. John Calvin writes this, Christ does not come to the sepulcher, this particular sepulcher, as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler, preparing for the contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again for the violent tyranny of death that he had to overcome stands before his eyes. There's the enemy. Fifth, Jesus weeps because he's a man. He's human, and humanity weeps in this world. Can you imagine for a moment if we didn't have this passage in the Bible? Just think about it for a moment. A Bible without that sentence, without those two words, the shortest verse in the Bible... Imagine that we didn't have that one, and imagine that we didn't have the other passages to come in John and other places wherein we read that Jesus was deeply moved. Imagine that we didn't have the statements of how Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Imagine that we didn't have written for us that Jesus cried like drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Imagine that that particular portion about Jesus was covered up. That it was pulled back and that we didn't know about it. But we do have them. And Jesus wept. It's startling in its poignancy and in its brevity. It stares us right in the face. And in hearing it and in looking at it, we get to see the heart of our Savior, the heart of the God man. By a man, we fell into the estate of sin and misery, or sin and sadness. And by a man of sorrows, we're lifted up out of it. Calvin, it will be agreeable to Scripture if we make the simple statement that when the Son of God put on our flesh, he also put on our feelings, so that he differed in nothing from his brethren, sin only accepted, End quote. He put on our flesh and He put on our feelings. Herman Ritterboss writes, as the Son of God, He does not come to redeem the world from imaginary grief or to make grief over imaginary death. It's the real thing. Jesus cried real tears. Jesus felt, Jesus felt with Martha and with Mary. And yeah, we can say it just like this. Jesus feels our pain and our grief. All right. Jesus is moved by death and the consequences of sin. Jesus is moved by unchecked mourning. If it forgets the hope of the resurrection... Jesus weeps out of love for a friend. Jesus weeps in preparation for his own experience of and battle with death. Jesus weeps as a human with humanity. And finally, Jesus weeps in sympathy with us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, we have a sympathetic high priest, a sympathetic Savior. Again, on the front of your bulletin, Romans 12:15. to put it as simply as we can possibly put it, he wept with those who wept. Why did he weep? He sympathized with other weepers. Calvin writes that the tears of Jesus give proof that he has sympathy. He shows that he is as much affected by our distress as if he had endured our distresses in his own person. End quote. He is as much affected by our distresses as if he had endured them in his own person. As if he went through what we go through. And that is exactly the case. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53, 3. Isaiah 53, 4 continues to say, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, I bet when you think of Jesus bearing something for you, you think like me. What did Jesus bear for you? Sin, shame, death, judgment. Jesus bore those things for us. He bore them in his body on the tree, First Peter. That's what we think of. Jesus bore sin on our behalf. Yea and amen. Yea and amen, he did. And Jesus bore misery on our behalf. Because we fell into sin and misery. Jesus didn't only bear your sin as if somehow he could devoid that from all of the feelings and all of the sadness and all of the tears and all of the consequences that go along with it. He bore sorrows. He carried our griefs. They're beautiful tears. They are holy tears. And at the end of the day, they are hopeful tears. When's the last time you had a good cry? When you wept, you may have felt the weight of the world. You may have felt alone. You were not. You have a Savior who has carried your tears who stores them up, who saves them up, and says, a day is coming when those tears go away and the morning comes and it's joy. In the meantime, you weren't alone. Jesus wept. Great Savior, you are not far from us. You are near to us through the Spirit whom you have sent into our lives, move us. Move us. Never let us be desensitized to the pain of this world. Keep our hearts pliable. In fact, change them and make them more like yours. Thank you, gracious Savior, for bearing our griefs and our sorrows. Help us to trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen.